Hey everyone, this is Brian Nam Sonstein, one of your hosts for the Beyond Prisons podcast. We are 100% listener funded, so if you like our work, please support us at beyond-prisons.com slash donate and rate, review, or subscribe wherever you listen. Today, we're sharing the audio from a recent panel that Kim organized as part of our campaign to stop the elimination of physical mail in Delaware prisons. You can watch a video of the discussion at our website, beyond-prisons.com, as well as find more information on this campaign. Kim introduces the panelists and gives a great intro to the conversation, so I won't duplicate efforts there, but we hope this inspires you to show up for the fight to preserve physical mail, not just in Delaware, but in prisons and jails across the country, where companies are attempting to extract greater profits off of loving communication, stymie political organizing and education, and further alienate and isolate incarcerated people. Here's Kim. Thanks for listening. Okay, so hello and welcome. I'm Kim Wilson, producer and co-host of Beyond Prisons. There are many people to thank um, who helped make this event happen this evening. First, I'd like to thank our comrades at the NYU Prison Education Program and Study and Struggle for co-hosting this event. A special thank you to Dylan Brown for masterfully taking care of the tech stuff, uh, to Charlotte Rosen for jumping in and agreeing to moderate, and Ellis Maxwell, our podcast editor who handles our social media and many other things. I'd also like to thank our panelists for sharing their brilliance with all of us and agreeing to do this on such short notice. And to all of you for joining us uh, here this evening. Tonight's discussion will focus on the importance of physical mail in prison and how the prison industrial complex works to undermine imprisoned people's ability to meaningfully communicate with their loved ones. Physical mail is a layered issue and policies that eliminate physical mail are violent and cruel. These policies do several things. One, they seek to destroy the loving and caring connections that people have. Two, my, they pile on more separation. I'm on mute. Can you help me uh, to unmute my computer? Okay. Um, hey, you're not on mute. I, I can't hear. One sec, Andre. Okay. All right. Are we, you got that, Dylan? Yeah. Okay, cool. This is, this, this is how we handle this. Okay. <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll keep going. All right. Um, two, they pile on more separation than that which already exists and makes it harder for people to remain in relationship and community with their support systems. Three, they disproportionately affect poor people. Four, they add another cost onto the already long list of things that prisoners and their loved ones pay for. And five, they expand the surveillance mechanisms of the carceral state in ways that I'm not sure we have begun to grapple with. Letter writing has always been an important form of communication between prisoners and their loved ones. Eliminating physical mail reveals the inhumanity of this system and illustrates that incarceration has nothing to do with rehabilitation or preparing people to return to their communities and everything to do with using incarcerated people and their loved ones as revenue streams. Letters exchanged between prisoners and loved ones offer a counter to the dehumanization that we experience. Letters, cards, drawings, and ephemera serve as proof of life in a system that seeks our erasure and death. 
These documents are how we build or rebuild relationships, how we share news, good, bad, and mundane, how we learn about the conditions inside, how prisoners are able to stay connected to their children and families that are outside, and how we prevent more harm. I'd like to introduce your moderator for this evening, as well as our esteemed panelists. First, we have Charlotte Rosen. Charlotte is a PhD candidate in history at Northwestern University and a member of Study and Struggle, which organizes against criminalization and incarceration in Mississippi through mutual aid, political education, and community building. Monica Cosby. Monica describes herself as a grandma trying to do liberatory stuff, subscribing to an abolition, abolition feminist mode of thinking, being, and moving in the world. Her life and work have been shaped and informed by the communities to which she belongs, including the community of artists, scholars, with moms with whom she was incarcerated and whose survival was and is an act of resistance against a system that would dispose of them. As an advocate and activist, she has collaborated, organized and worked with Westside Justice Center, Moms United Against Violence and Incarceration, Chicago Metropolitan Battered Women's Network, Unitarian Universalist Prison Ministry of Illinois, Women's Justice Institute, the Uptown People's Law Center, and others. Monica is a scholar, thinker, and writer, having essays published or reprinted in Truthout and in the long term, published by Haymarket Books. She also wrote Solitary Confinement is used to break people as well as On Leaving Prison, a reflection on entering and exiting communities. And finally, Restorative Revelations by Monica Cosby and Annalise Booth, published in the St. Thomas Law Journal. Lawrence Posey. Lawrence is, a 44 year old, is 44 years old and originally from Camden, New Jersey. He currently lives in the Bronx. He is a father of two children who are 18 and 15. He was previously incarcerated. Since his release, he works as a manager at a company called Reserve Inc., which is a COVID-19 coalition. He is also a student at New York University studying at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study, study majoring in film and business. He recently started his own publishing and production company called Legacy Works Enterprises. In addition to publishing, Legacy Works Enterprises focuses on youth educational programs and social justice. Lawrence is part of the social justice cohort at the Center for Employment Opportunities, where he organizes with the Participant Advocacy Council. The PAC cohort has lobbied with Communities Not Cages, which has fought to eliminate mandatory minimum sentencing and advocated for Second Look Act, the Earn Good Time Act and the Clean Clean Slate Act. Finally, PAC also is in association with Treatment Not Jail, lobbying for mental health programs instead of prison. Michael Pagan is a student at NYU and is curious about the relationships between perception, memory, and narration. He is fascinated by the process of merging poetry with filmmaking and the art of social photography with data-driven storytelling. His writing and photography have been featured in NYU publications, including the Gallatin Review, Confluence, Fire in the Lake, and Missives, 
and his short documentary series, Afternotes, can be viewed at, at the NYU's Prison Education Program website. Sergio Highland, recently returned to society after serving 21 years straight. He is an abolitionist and editor-in-chief of the Movement Magazine, the official magazine of the Human Rights Coalition in Pennsylvania. He also works for the Abolitionist Law Center. Andre Pierce spent 25 years caged in Connecticut state prisons. He earned a bachelor's degree with a concentration in philosophy. He writes, quote, my strenuous efforts took place alongside my fight to maintain my sanity in a soul-crushing carceral institution, end quote. He asserts that his extraordinary growth and development cannot be understood as rehabilitation, but instead as black liberation. Dre uses his intimate experience of suffering in prison to fuel his passion for prison abolition. Right, I'm, I'm, but, uh, but, um, so Go ahead. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll figure it out. We're, you're good. You're good, Dre. Okay. Um, and finally, Maya Shenwar. Maya Shenwar is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out. She is the co-author with Victoria Law, A Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms, and author of Lockdown Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. She is also the co-editor with Joe McCary and Alana Yulon Price of Who Do You Serve, Who Do You Protect? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States. Maya is the co-founder of the Chicago Community Bond Fund and she organizes with the abolitionist collective Love and Protect. I'll now turn it over to Charlotte, thank you. Great, um, thank you so much, Kim. Um, yeah, so although the events that bring us here today are very much far from ideal, I very much wish that we did not have to constantly fight the efforts of prison administrations to impose policies that further harm and isolate and dehumanize imprisoned people. We were talking earlier, Monica mentioned that it's sort of it's not quite even harm reduction, it's more like harm maintenance. I think that's probably, a, unfortunately, a good way to kind of think about it. Um, but despite all of that, I am very grateful and honored to moderate this panel on male in prisons today with such an esteemed and powerful group of comrades. Um, so to kick things off, um, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to kind of do a brief response to a first question. So we'll go around, have everyone respond. Um, and it's sort of a two in one. So the question is, um, when you think of male imprisoned, what comes to mind? And then what do we lose as a result of this policy to abolish physical mail? Um, so we'll start with this one question and from there we'll let the conversation flow. You can tap in, tap out, you know, accordingly. Um, but yeah, but let's kick it off with that first question. And does someone want to kick us off or shall I pick someone? <laughs> I didn't hear the question. Okay, I'll repeat the question. Can you hear me now when I talk? Yes. Okay, perfect. So the question again, thank you for stopping me. The question again is when you think of male in prisons, what comes to mind and what do we lose as a result of this policy to abolish physical mail? Okay, can I respond or? Yeah, you can kick us off, go for it. Okay, because now when, when I think of uh, physical mail, what I think about is a kind of intimacy that it creates it creates sort of a, a comfort and a softness 
right? And what can be an otherwise hard and lonely carceral experience. And let me explain what I mean by this. So now when a person writes a letter, right? Their unique personality is what uniquely carves or rather uh, dot their eyes and shape their teeth, right? Their spirit becomes materialized and between the lines of the pages. So when the incarcerated person reads that letter, they're connecting with the essence, the spirit of that dear friend, that loved one. So in that moment of letter reading, they experience a, a moment of intimacy, right? And that's the softening. Right, that's what's needed, and that's what gets lost when you take away physical mail. Yeah, thank you. That was, I think, a great way to kind of kick us off. Um, does someone else want to jump in? Um, yeah, well, um, I, I think that um, more than anything else, outside of going home, people in prison look for mail. There's there's no there's no feeling that can can measure up to that in prison when it only it's only given out once per day. And for that 10 minutes that the, that the guard is handing out mail, everything stops. Even if things are continuing to move, everything stops. Everybody is waiting to see if they have something because to receive mail is to know that somebody loved you enough to sit down and write a letter to you. And it cuts both ways because there are those who don't receive mail and it hurts them in, in ways that can't be measured. And that is the importance of mail. If something, if something can harm you that bad, then it can hurt you. I mean, it can, it can make you, it can heal you as well. And so, um, Mail is, is just a critical physical mail. It's just a critical, like like uh, Andre just said. It's like um, you get to you smell a letter. You get to see a person's handwriting. You could tell if a person. I could tell when my wife was upset when she was writing me. Not upset at me, but upset at anything. I could tell, and she could tell with me. And uh, these are things you can go back to and keep. And, and look at whenever you feel like it. I had pictures or, you know, or, or, or letters, you know, that I could just always turn to. And, and, and they, they took that from us in Pennsylvania and they're trying to do it in other places now. But Pennsylvania has been without that stuff for a few years now. Thank you. Yeah. I love the, I'll build on, on, on both of their uh, points. Um, the mail come, when mail comes in, you know, when physical mail comes in, there, there's a sense of wellness that, that is overtaken by knowing that someone took the time out to sit down and express their self, writing, you know, their heart and their thoughts on a piece of paper. And then when you're sitting inside, the act itself is, is mental wellness in itself too, because you're taking a part of you and you're just, you're, you're feeding the thoughts, you're, the way, like, like Andre said, the, the way you dot your eyes, the way, you know, you may, you know, curse in a letter or you may give love in a letter, the way that emotion is expressed is allowing us to heal somewhat because 
you know, is it's an inner self thing. It's coming from from the heart. It's coming from something that has been thought out throughout the day. That when you go sit in that room and you're ready to just pour your heart out or your emotions out to someone you love, there's power in that. There's power in healing. There's rehabilitation in that wellness that comes with that. So to get rid of something like that is just like, okay, destroying the fabric of rehabilitation in itself because it's also part of healing. To be able to write when you know that you have made mistakes in your life and you better to express it without, without rebuke. And that's an importance in, in writing. It's an, the act itself is feeding, you know, all the emotions coming from both ends, from the people that send in the letters and from the people that are receiving the letters. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, who wants to take us further? We got three of you left. Um, someone wants to jump in. It's everything that, everything everyone has said, right? Everything that everyone has said. I was locked up for 20 years in Illinois prisons. Um, I've been out a little over six years now. And about a year ago, I was with my middle daughter and all we had during the time that I was locked up with were letters because phone calls just costed way too much money, right? And I was locked up in Illinois and my family moved out of state. So the only relationship that I had was through the mail, right? And so I was talking to, with my daughter and she still has letters that I wrote her, pictures that I drew her, right? I still have some pictures and cards and stuff from my mom and my kids from my while I was locked up, um, I think it's a disaster to eliminate paper mail. And it's about all, all the things that we are already talking about, right? Um, the way it's life-giving and life-sustaining, right? Um, it's also shit. With that comes the idea that like books are next, you know? It's books, it's legal work and every, the control of information and the flow of information, right? That's some serious shit. Yes, yes, yes. It's a type of violence that shit. Kim, what do you call it? Abuser logics, right? There's not a whole lot of, I wait, how, I wanna say this the right way. Um, the methodologies used by abusers and the methods that the state uses for isolation and control and maintenance of power over are very, very similar. So if like you're in an intimate partner situation or domestic violence relationship, they control where you get to go, who you get to talk to, what TV you get to watch, what you get to read, the whole entire nine, right? They're this is what prisons do, and this is another way of doing that, of controlling all information and coming and going, right? Um, it's it's so it's so motherfucking harmful to the psyche, right? It is doing exactly what prisons and the prison industrial complex is intending to do: break communities, right? Keep com break communities, separate communities, and keep them separate to separate families and friends and whole entire communities one from the other. And they're exceedingly good at that. Um, the fuck, we just gotta be better and refuse it. Uh, that's what I, well, I got a whole bunch of shit I wanna say, but that's where I'm gonna leave it, fuck prisons. 
No, that's perfect. I mean, I just to what, say one thing before Ellis and, and Michael go, like, I think people don't realize how these scanning devices, for example, like with pictures, how when they're rescanned, at, like you can, like in some cases, you can like barely see the image, right? So thinking about like, if you're trying to send a picture of family, right? And you like can't even see your kids' faces. And there, there was an article, I'll see if I can drop it in the chat that like actually had showed what those scans looked like. And it's just like how horrifying, right? To like not even be able to receive pictures of your loved ones they just have like hollowed out faces from the scan so just wanted to kind of like lift that up from what from what Monica was saying but um but Ellis or, or Michael um either one of you should feel free to jump in yeah uh, it's kind of hard to kind of you know I'm asking myself what can I say to contribute to what's already been said because they, they already hit the gist of it and uh I, on my personal experience, I didn't receive a lot of mail while I was incarcerated. So when I did get mail, it was like a big deal. It was a, it was a big deal. And I did, I did 13 years. And I could probably count, I could count on one hand how many times I received a letter. And that's important because someone like me treats mail, physical mail, a letter as an artifact, as a piece of art, as a work of art. And that's important because like in my room now, I have letters on my bulletin board that I look at every day. And that kind of points to the, the function of the physicality of mail and, the, and what it does in, in the, the act of remembering, right? And that's important because like, what do we want to remember when we are in a cell? You know, we want to remember our name we remember we want to remember our name who we was prior to that experience right and so when i used to because i, I, I received mail so little when i go to the board to see my name on the list pagan there it's just like in a way someone recognized the officer or somebody processed my mail that i have a name and that was important for me to see. It was important for me to hear the officer, Pagan, you got mail. For somebody to acknowledge that I am not just the DIN number that I was given and that that's, that's not how my family look at me. They don't look at me according to a DIN number. And that that's not, that's not the totality of who I am, right? And, we, and I, was, I was inside when they basically gave tablets, right? And I received emails and it's a different experience, right? Because like, I can't, I can't access those emails now, right? I cannot access those, I have the letters, the few letters that I do have, I still have them. But even then, it, but even like the process of accessing the email, hooking up to the kiosk and going through that, they're still like, they muted the whole recognition of a person's name. Right? It's just like, you just hook up to the kiosk and you just like see an email, you pop it, you read, then you go about your business. And for somebody to say your names, for somebody to, you know, see your, for you to see your name on a list, for you to kind of have that moment to remember personally who you was and that you have a name and you're not just the 09A3320, you're not just that person, you're more and that somebody in the world remembers that and still believes in that person 
And, and, and I think that's what comes up for me, you know, um, is what the physicality of now for a person, you know, in the, in the act of remembering, you know, so. Yes. Yeah. Um, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that's super powerful. And I think I hadn't even realized, like, it's totally obvious, right, that you wouldn't be able to keep emails afterwards. But like, just, yeah, the way in which that just is so, um, yeah, that you lose all of that um, is just, I don't know, that's really upsetting and, and um, important to kind of, I think, center in this conversation compared, you know, when we're thinking about assaults on physical mail. Um, Great, so I wanna give Ellis a chance to hop in before we move to the next question. Um, so go for it. Yeah, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you everybody for what you shared so far. Um, I'll just add briefly, like I started writing to people in prison as a college student and it was really, you know, especially queer and trans prisoners through organizations like Black and Pink. Um, and to me, what stands out about physical mail is just like, the, the love and the creativity that y'all have been mentioning has really influenced the direction of all these relationships, like in so, so many different ways. Like I think about exchanging short stories that, that, you know, a friend had made or that I had made, like, you know, exchanging stories back and forth, even conducting interviews or having political discussions or something as simple as talking about sports you know, just like so many different directions that can come out of a relationship that just started with physical mail. And for me, like a, a sometimes included like phone calls or visits, um, but oftentimes just like continue to be just physical mail, but that kind of intimacy that so many people have touched on still left a lot of space and leaves a lot of space now because I still communicate with people through physical mail. like to grow together and to, to, to have powerful connections. So yeah, that's what I wanna share. And thank you so much for, um, for being here tonight, everybody. I'll pass it back to Charlotte. Great, thank you so much. Um, so actually kind of, I feel like Ellis, you just sort of modeled a good way to sort of think about this next question. Um, but so I'm gonna put it to the group and anyone who wants to kind of jump in should feel free to do so. Um, but just kind of asking folks to elaborate a little more on kind of what your experience with physical mail is and particularly um, in the role it plays in your relationships with loved ones, either um, as the person who is inside or now on the outside, how it kind of allows you to keep those connections with folks inside. And if folks want to kind of bring any examples to the fore, um, now would be the time to kind of do that as well. Yeah, I, I can start you off there. Um, so... <laughs> this is kind of funny here. So um, I, I, I've only been home now for about a month in a, in a week or two, maybe. And so um, I, I was married about a year before I was released. And my wife, I've known since I was a child. We went to school together. And I did a juvenile bid where, where uh, thank you, uh, uh, Kim. And um. I was at Glen Mills and when I was young and I was back then writing to my friend who was now my wife and we were, we were corresponding. I was corresponding with her, her family. And uh, it's funny because when we reconnected when I was in prison, she told me that she thought she had those letters still. And this is over 20 years ago. And I said, man, get out of here. 
And she went down into her basement and found them and showed them to me on a virtual visit. They were in perfect condition. And she read them to me. And the things, the, the things that I was saying to her over the last few years that we've been building before we got married were the same things I was saying to her back then. And the kind of woman that she is, I don't know that if those letters didn't exist, if she would have looked at me as if I was in a skeptical way, you know, because she could tell that I was the same person that I was back then, despite what people were saying about me because of my incarceration. <clears throat> and, and she still has the letters and um, they're meaningful and, and um, powerful, they're important. And um, like the brother said earlier, uh, Michael Pagani, he's like he, he tapes it. He has his pinned up. They mean something. You look at them, and 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 I would just before I, before I pass it off, I don't want to talk too long. But I would just compare this situation to what's going on with the virtual visit thing, because the same way they took letters from us in Pennsylvania and, and gave us a digital copy of it, digital scan, they're trying to do that with the visiting system. Because of COVID, COVID has given them license to, to practice these things and, um, and try to implement them as a more permanent policy. And if we feel like that about letters, imagine the effect that it would have on a person if they do that to a physical visit. Yes, I've made so many great points and like just a piggyback. Um, off of all the great ideas that you know, we're touching on, right? Because now I'm a very spiritual person, so I cannot leave spirituality, you know, out of the conversation. So for me, like my letters, because I've been down for 25 years, I've been home for no more than three weeks. Um, I still have all of my letters going back since 1996, right? I haven't written back of me. So, so for me as a spiritual person, those letters have a certain energy to them. So when I read my letters and reread them, right, I feel that spiritual connection to my, my friends, my, my family members, some, some who, are, who are passed away. So that gives me a certain like spiritual grounding, a certain centeredness, right? And, uh, and to touch on the point that, um, that Mike touched on it in terms of um, how when you like in that prison environment, right, which is very hyper masculinized, right, you have to assume certain identities, you, you play certain roles, right? But even though you're playing certain roles, you know, you, you still feel a sense of, you know, loneliness because in the sense that you don't have any real connections, you're just playing parts to survive. But with the letters, as Michael talked about, right, it reaffirms who you are, right? That, the person that took the time to write that letter speaks to um your identity, which gets lost in the prison environment. So when you do um you know re uh, read and reread your letters, it reaffirms your identity, and it uh gives you a sense of uh like like company, if you will, a community, and um and all that gets lost when you strip away the written letter. Thank you. Oh, Lawrence, I think you're muted. Yeah, but I yeah. see you want to hop in. <laughs> I'll, I'll feed off of what Mike was talking about because I, I didn't really receive a lot of letters uh, when I was locked up, you know, through both my beds. I did seven and a half total years, but my letters were from my kids. 
you know, and um, they were far in between because, you know, they all wrapped up in video games and stuff like that. So I, I, it's more conversation on the phone than, yeah. you know, than anything. But those letters to me signified that they took the time out from their daily, you know, school and their video games and their friends to put something down on paper to, you know, just, you know, they talked to me all the time. You know, I was constantly talking to my kids at least four or five times a week. I'm, I'm talking to my, both my boys. But the fact that they took the moment to sit down and write a page letter just to, you know, change the dynamic on how we communicate was, it's monumental. I mean, it built a, I think it built more of a closeness between us because they took the time to do that, you know, because they, you know, and they really hate writing. I'm not gonna lie. They really hate it, <laughs> yeah. but they did it, you know, and that, and that just speaks volume and to be able to just, you know, sometimes just write my letters to them, you know, being a father that is not only teaching them over the phone, but teaching them through letters that they can just revert back to. My son tells me now, even now, my youngest son, he say, I got that. I got all your letters that you've written to me. You know, I, I go back and I read them and I just like to know, you know, you know, that you stay true to all the things that you say in your letters, you know, or, or you know, even the change that he's seen that I was making spiritually, you know, uh, throughout, you know, my ideas in life. Those letters he holds close to him because there was a large piece of me that he didn't get to hold close to physical being, you know? So yeah, that's what letter, that's what writing was for me. And it actually pushed me into writing stories. I mean, I write fictional stories, but you know, being able to create stories and share them with my kids, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it was just, it was just a way to bond with them too, you know? That's amazing. Yeah, that kind of reminds me, I feel like in this question, when I think about it, I'm like, that's the main way I, you know, write zines with comrades inside, right? Is like, go, you know, trading letters back and forth, going through drafts, right? It's actually sort of like, not just about building relationships, but also it can be like a creative, you know, it's like a, a form of, you know, building the world we want to live in, building the art we want to see. So yeah, no, that's beautiful. Um, Maya, did you want to hop in next? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, maybe I'll start on that note because actually the the first person I ever wrote to inside was someone who was on death row. And I was a reporter for this magazine called Punk Planet. And I just wrote to him to interview him about a, a hunger strike he was leading on death row. And he wrote back with a zine that, that he was producing inside. And our correspondence over the next five, six years was based around zine creation, around kind of that creative process together of this zine that he was already building and distributing on death row. And Tragically, he, he was killed by the state of Texas in 2011. And I still have all of the, all of the zines and they've become, you know, a monument to him. And I, similarly, I, I have so much 
that's kind of flooding my mind right now hearing everyone talk. But when my sister was incarcerated, we would use mail in so many ways that that you would ordinarily like just not even think about on the outside. So for example, celebrating. She was always saying, I'll be home for my birthday. I'll be home for, you know, whatever holiday. And if it didn't happen, then mail was how we were going to celebrate, you know, and that was so significant. It was about the passage of time and it was about sharing something meaningful in a tangible way, you know, that goes so far beyond a phone call. And also, also with her, the, all of the letters that I have of hers, she died also tragically um, and a way that I think was in many ways caused by the criminal punishment system. But she, the letters that she sent to me now are some of the most important tangible reminders of her spirit, you know, and the letters that I sent to her, I know she treasured till the day she died, not because they were so special, you know, not that my letters were so great, but just they took on that greater significance, you know, took on that emotional significance. And I remember she used to love picture frames. I remember she, I visited her in treatment after the last time she got out of jail. And um, she showed me that she had framed one of my letters. And I was like, why did you frame my letter? And she was like, there was like one sentence in it that she had been thinking about it for years ever since she got it. So you don't know what the significance of that is going to be. And I think that that meaning is almost hard to, hard to even put into words. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Maya. Um, I want to, if we can move on to another question, but I do want to keep the floor open just in case anyone else wants to hop in on this. So, okay, I'm going to move us along then. Um, so the next question I want to pose to the group um, is kind of asking, and I think, you know, it's already been perhaps referenced a little bit with the mention, Sergio mentioning um, the video visits and kind of the attempt by prisons to also sort of push more people towards video visits and, and you know, essentially like abolish or very much diminish in-person visitation. But how can we understand this move to abolish physical mail um, and kind of prison mail policies generally in the larger context of like greater restrictions on prisoner contact with the outside world, such as the video only visitation um, that was especially very prevalent during the pandemic. Um, so yeah, I just want to kind of open the floor to that sort of think about um, these policies in, in kind of broader context and see what that brings up for folks. Um, so pr prisons are sort of like the, the unsupervised child of the state. They are allowed to do whatever they want. 
The guards do whatever they want. They treat people however they want. There's no accountability for staff. There's only, there's only punishment for prisoners. So the, the taking away mail, um, taking away contact visits, like you, like you um, stated, restricting our interaction with society, what that is doing is, is keeping us closed off from society. In a, in, a, in a day and age where everything is about technology and easy interaction, prisoners have done everything to, to limit that. And it's because if people knew what was taking place inside of prison, even those people who believe that if you do the crime, you do the time, right? If people saw what was taking place on a deli inside of prison, they would be forced to, to, to respond to it. And I've been around, I'm sure the brothers and sisters who've been in prison on this panel or in the audience, they know, they, they know that there a lot of staff members in prison take their personal issues out on people in prison because we can't fight back without extreme punishment. And most of us are smart enough to know that we can't win that. So we try to play the long game and be smart about it. But, but that is the larger context of, of this restriction on communication. Yes. Yeah, I, I do wanna, I wanna give Monica a chance just cause, uh, but then yeah, Monica, go for it. Oh, I'm sorry, Charlotte. No, no, um, no. yeah. I think I, I had started talking about this a little bit earlier um, in terms of state violence and comparing it kind of, comparing those methodologies of state violence, of power and control to intimate partner violence and domestic violence, right? And so it's still very much that, right? That means of isolating and controlling communication, right? All communications, who, the way you write, who you write, who gets to write you, who you get to write to, who gets to come and see you, right? Those kinds of things, who you can talk to on the phone and who you can't, limitations on who you can and can't, all of those kinds of things. It's also, and it extends larger, right? To issues of censorship and, you, um, a couple of you were talking about writing to prisoners and making zines and shit, right? Collaborating in that manner. So if there's no paper mail, then why people got to have paper and pens? Why we got to have art supplies? You know what I'm saying? All of these things that has such a, the potential for it's, it is, it is about how we feel and keeping our connections to our families. It is about staying connected connected to our communities. And it is as simple as paper mail, right? A paper mail, it weighs like nothing. But I remember one of the first talks that I ever was invited to, I was at a thing with you, Maya, with Love and Protect. We were at, at uh, Grace Place, I think on Dearborn in Chicago, right? And I had said this at the time that, uh, you know, a letter doesn't weigh anything, right? It just maybe weighs an ounce or whatever. It's just a couple of pieces of paper and some ink but it, the weight of that is everything. The weight of that is everything, right? The potential for removing paper mail just reinforces all the ways we are already isolated. It's more power, it's more control. And again, it is. it leads up to the different kinds of censorship. Like we know 
we know how this, we are, those of us that have been to prison or you got people in prison, we know how this works, right? We know exactly how this works. So if you, if you cut off the mail, you're cutting off people's access to legal resources and everything else. It is about letters from our wives and our husbands and our lovers and our children and all like that. It's about all of that. It's about maintaining all of that, but it's also about maintaining access to all the rest of that too. Fuck. Prisons suck. Like we can't, <laughs> this has got to stop. This has got to stop. That's what I got. That's all I got. Uh, Andre, because I got something after you, Andre. But yes, I, I just can't help but wonder whether this is a DOC's, you know, um, sneaky, sneaky effort to, to strip away the last modicum modem of privacy because the speak for Connecticut prisons, where I did 25 years, um, outgoing mail, the, the, the letters that we write to our family members or people on the outside, right? It has greater privileges than all other forms of communication. So for example, um, when we you know, use the phones, we're warned that the phone call is being recorded, right? With the, uh, the emails and the tablets, we're warned that it's all being monitored and, and, and censored. With the outgoing mail in Connecticut, right? We're given the privilege of being able to, you know, write letters, send them out and not have them censored unless the DOC finds a so-called legitimate cause. But even then they warn you that, okay, now you, you know, you're, you're, you're all, you're under mail review, you're being warned, right? But if they, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that with, with the, uh, the outgoing mail that we, that we send out, um, it gives us some kind of privacy that we don't have in any other form of communication, right? So now that's important for people like myself who, you know, I, I'm not the most social person, right? Um, some, some of my ideas, Right. I, I feel I feel comfortable only uh, expressing them to a few people on the outside. So for me, the means to doing that was the letter, you know, letter writing. So now if you took that away from me, I lost that sense of privacy. I, I, I lose a sense of myself. Right. But, but again, I, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, is, is this their effort to um, strip away that last, you know, model of privacy? And I, I'm, I'm a feed off of that. Um, you know, you think about prison and, you know, you think it's supposed to be about rehabilitation, you know, making better members of society as they strip all our programs and stuff away and, and throw us in these cages and they start to take away our privacies, uh, a lot of our privilege. But, you know, they want us to come back home and be productive members of society, but they want to strip all the things of rehabilitation that was designed. Yeah, we do our we do the crime, we go there and we do our time, but we learn something from that. You know, I, I had the luxury of going to NYU while I was in prison, you know. Um, but the, the, the whole thing is, is that you're stripping away civil liberties that it's, it's part of humanity. It's part of what we are as a civilization. You know, and then you want us to go back out in the world and be productive. But you're destroying us while we're inside. You're not you're not allowing us being that we come from these urban communities that are are dealing with, you know, all the the um, this all the um, 
not the this privilege that we you know we have and we get we go through this whole dynamic of you know from the from from our urban community straight to prison is all designed the same all almost designed the same way and then we wind up in there and then you tell us that you want us to be pro you know productive members of society when we come back up but you don't give us the tools you're taking away the tools that prison was meant for because now you just want to cage and make animals right now you want to take our privacies away from us you know and want us to be civil it doesn't make any sense the straight what we use as male because male is more is probably the most private thing you know letter writing it's probably the most private thing we have in prison now. Phone calls are recorded. Emails are monitored. You know, even the music you download off your tablet, all that stuff is monitored now. So now our last piece of mental wellness that is only for us and the person that we want to communicate with is trying to be taken away. Okay. It doesn't make any sense. They want to create more animals. They want to create you know, the recidivism, they want to keep the recidivism raised so they can keep big business going, you know, and that's what we got to fight against. I was at a rally today fighting about Bell Law for Riker, Rikers Island and stuff like that. I was going through that today, you know, fighting to change the, the governor and the lieutenant governor to, for Jemani and them. So I'm fully involved in, in change. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, um, do want us to talk a little bit about this kind of surveillance piece, but I, I want to keep the floor open on this question as well in case some other folks want to want to hop in. Yeah, no, I was just going to say real quick that um, we also can see how, you know, what what prison officials and, and government officials are willing to do and try out in prison, they may also, they will be willing to do on the outside as well. There's no separation there. And um, as like technological advancements, like more digital communication is, is happening more and more. And we see like, even in our society, attacks on physical mail for all kinds of things, right? Um, and the convenience being like quicker with digital mail um, or digital communication. We know that, that those kind of advancements also lead to increased surveillance. Um, and we also have a lot of people who are, who are really like concerned about surveillance, um, but I think need to center their concerns in the prison as well. Like if you're concerned about communication being surveilled or, or whatever it is, like search history, whatever it is, like look in the prison because that's, that's like where it is historically and right now. So yeah, I just wanted to add that. Hey, can I say something real quick, Trump? Yeah. Um, so I just want to piggyback off that a little bit. Um, as far as society is concerned, I remember when I was in solitary confinement um, and I was back there with, with, a lot of, with a lot of strong people, a lot of, a couple of former Black Panthers and I was studying under them. And um, one of the, one of the things that I that I read was an essay by his name was I think Eddie Griffith, right? And it, it was about solitary confinement. It was about the prison at Torah Hawk, the federal prison. And the the secretary of the federal federal bureau of prisons had addressed the other secretaries of each prison, and he said that the purpose of Torah Hawk, Indiana, the purpose of the prison at Torah Hawk, Indiana, was to control revolutionary 
attitudes within the prison and in the surrounding community. So prison is 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 just a um is, is just a a small part of this whole thing. And when you talk about so-called rehabilitation and things like that, that's not the purpose of prison. The purpose of prison is to punish, is to control, um, is to intimidate, fear, is to um yep. to do all of those things. And so therefore there's only one alternative for anybody who doesn't like what's going on, and it's in my opinion, and that is to be an abolitionist. And that's what I that's why I am what I am. I don't think that there's any good that can, that can come out of prison. So um, even if a person comes out and is successful because of what he went through in prison, that doesn't mean that prison made them that success. That means they they thrive despite yes. in, spite, in spite of being in prison. And so it takes, and that's a very unique thing right there. And so, especially for everybody that's on the panel right now, I gotta, I gotta give everybody on this panel right now who formerly incarcerated respect for that right there because they're not here because prison helped them. They're there because somebody helped them, and then they found it in them to be able to help themselves. And that's my experience, and I know that that, that that's their experience as well. Hell yeah to all of that. Um, yeah, so I'm going to I'm gonna kind of throw another question out there, but if folks are still kind of like feeling this one or want to throw some stuff in, they're all kind of like related in lots of ways. Um, but I did want to kind of maybe pick up a little bit on this surveillance piece. So just as to kind of pose it as, as a question, um, maybe, you know, how does the digitization of mail and visitation kind of expand the surveillance capacities of prisons, um, you know, and particularly of communication by people who are not incarcerated as well as people who are. Um, just wanted to kind of throw that out to the group um, for folks to respond. As and I just want to say like, um, oh, okay, yeah, go for it. Uh -huh. I'm sorry, Charlotte. I'm talking to Sergio. Brother, I so much respect for you. Welcome home. Thank you. Um, when, when we're talking about, so in Illinois, um, folks got together, managed to pass a bill that says that you will not replace in-person visits with video visits, right? In anticipation of shit like this. And that was no, and this was like a little bit before we started talking about it broadly, right? and still was up a whole lot against a whole lot of shit to get that done. Um, but we know, I imagine this happens in all the joints. So in Illinois, it's called OTS, the offender tracking system or some other shit where they keep track of who visits you, how many visits you get, everything about you, right? Everything about you. So they know your kids' names, your mom, your dad, your birthday, all that kind of shit. They know who comes to see you. They keep track of who you're getting mail from, what classes you take, what groups you take, what movements you go on, your physical medical records, all your medical records, right? Your like physical health, your mental health, like if you're under any kind of mental health care and shit, all of these things are tracked and surveilled. And so when we eliminate paper mail, not only are we taking away that intimacy, but we're making our hope because we we know how it is to have these relationships through the mail, these incredibly close, intimate relationships that we're talking about, shit that we don't may not talk about to anybody out here ever. You know what I'm saying? And so it limits that because you know that that shit's being surveilled, right? So it really it it is such a violent, invasive thing, 
right? It cuts off not only your communication, but the way you do communicate when you can, because now you know you're being surveilled versus that little bit more freedom that you had in the paper mail, right? Again, there's the potential to remove paper, books, all of that from the prisons. You know what I'm saying? It's also a way of exactly that, of surveilling even more about us and moving that surveillance. It moves, it's the same thing with like EM a little bit. It kind of takes the prison outside of the prison, like through these tentacles, and it's just moving it into our communities. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we know that the prison people communicate with local law enforcement. That's not even their local. So like in Illinois, you got Lincoln, which is like what, three, four hours away from Chicago, but they communicate with Chicago PD, right? About who's coming to see who and shit like that. The, all, all of this is, because it's not just, Serge, you were saying it, like it's not just about the prisons. It is the prisons as a central point, but people are coming through, the prison is just like, the place where everything is held, it's the disappeared. What does Angela Davis say? It disappears all the social problems, right? And so we're in the prison. We're all in the prison. And so we see it and the things that they can get away with prison out here. And I think someone was speaking of this earlier, right? Those things that they can do in the prisons will get done out here if they come in the morning. I wish I could remember the way that Martin Niemöller says it. I tried to put it in the chat and I can't remember it exactly. Right, and Pat Parker has this entire wonderful ass poem, where will you be, right? If they come, if they come in the morning, you know, they coming for you that night. It's, and that is the way to really be thinking about it. I think, I don't know, it kind of pisses me off because I think that there are times when people out here don't believe the constancy the constancy of the onslaught of violence and brutality that happens in the prisoners on a daily by staff, that some things just can get, be considered mundane. Like we know which COs like to pat us down. So we're just already ready, right? Um, it is how it gets reduced down to this just everyday thing that I'm always ready to be patted down that you ain't even got to tell me, you know what I'm saying? So like some of us used to make it a point of pride to like make them say it. I'm not just gonna comply, right? Um, prisons having that level of control. Th this is, people censor themselves now out here to stay accepted, to be a part of, to belong, stuff like that. It's, and we see how this works kind of in the prisons, right? Where I don't wanna say you're putting up a front because that, that's not exactly the language that I mean. That's not exactly what I mean, but you're maintaining a certain visage, right? So that you can survive and still be you. So you've got to maintain something. And so when you have some uh, mechanism by which you just get to be and that gets taken, that is such a profound, uh, it's such a profound motherfucking violence, right? It is, it's masking, thank you, Kim. It's masking for survival, right? And I think we all do that. Who is this, Paul Lawrence Sunbar? We all wear the mask, right? Um, I think that, I don't know, organizing around this is gonna be hard because there's already so much going on in the world and in the grand scheme, like, I think we don't think about prisons a lot. And I'm like, obviously we do, we're here on this call, but I think broadly, 
like there's still this sentiment that like well they shouldn't have did that you know what i'm saying and so it's building around that and trying to make folks i guess understand that we came from a place and by and large we're coming back to a place right by and large we're coming back to a place like how do you want us when we get there how do you want us when we get there and this thing called also this is the last thing i'm going to say this thing that we keep calling rehabilitation that happens in prison again it happens despite prison not because of everything i got i took from the prison the prison is made for me to have shit, right um it's also i think it's more of a discovery of self right not so much rehabilitation but i think it's more of like a discovery of self that happens with study and struggle right alone and with other people through the mail, through visits, and with your roommates and the people you work in the kitchen with and shit. Um, I don't know, my fear is that like, it removes all paper. We communicate with each other on through letters in the prison, just sending each other kites. Like this is the ripple, the ripples out. It's as simple as paper mail. It's that simple lightweight thing, but it is such a heavyweight motherfucking issue, right? And I just, I wanna encourage folks to remember that like, the paper mail is lightweight but heavy like a motherfucker. I got some quantum shit. That's what I got. Thank you. Yeah, no, that was great, Monica. <clears throat> I I want to throw it to the next person, but I do want to just create some space in case Michael and Maya want to hop in just because y'all haven't spoken in a while, but no pressure. But then we can we can pop over. So yeah, Maya, do you want to go for it? Yeah, absolutely. I think what Monica was saying about surveillance is so powerful, how it's not just the surveillance itself, which is in itself a very brutal form of control. It's also about the self-censorship and the information and emotion that are prevented from being communicated. And I remember, so usually when my sister went to jail, it was Cook County, but one time, she was arrested in Lake County and they did not have in-person visits. They only had video visits. And which I say visits, but it's not really a visit, right? It's not, it's not even like a Zoom call or a Skype call. It's like the quality is terrible, you know, and you're being re recorded. And so Keely knew that we were being recorded and the things that we needed to talk about in advance of her getting out were things that she did not want to say on a monitored call that we could have said in person, even if we were just across phones or across that little wall, you know, plexiglass wall, even if we weren't at the same table, we could still talk to each other in a way that couldn't be heard, but she would not say the things. And part of what she wanted to communicate, what she told me later, was the things that would actually help her survive when she got out in relation to her addiction, in relation to what she wanted to be doing and what we could provide for her in those first couple of days. And as soon as she got out, she started using again. And she told me very clearly, if we could have had an actual visit where I could talk to you and we could communicate as people, that path afterwards 
would have looked completely different. And so I think that's really crucial when we talk about surveillance. We're not just talking, like I think um, sometimes in conservative circles, this like anti-surveillance gets portrayed as like privacy, like you don't want advertisers looking at you or, you know, and of course it's about privacy, but it's also about just vital, vital information that just can't be communicated between people, including vital information about survival. Absolutely. Um, does anyone else want to hop in? Lawrence, yeah, go for it. Uh, what I was going to say is basically like, you know, privacy, See, when you take, a, you do the electronic mail, right? And we know that's being monitored. So what, that, what it does is, is, is doesn't allow us to pour out everything that we need to pour out. So we start to harbor, right? Emotions that we normally write on the paper and we get out because now we uh, know that we can't say everything we want because it's being monitored. Somebody might misconstrue what is being said and think that, you know, not knowing that we speak a certain language, especially black and brown people, we speak a certain language to our people, you know, which can get misconstrued, right? So when you start to harbor, when they're, when they're monitoring that stuff, you, get, you begin to harbor certain emotions. So what does that uh, happen? What happens when you're inside, you harbor an emotion that somebody make you mad or somebody attack you in a way that they, that you felt offended, but they wasn't really coming at you, you lash out. You know, because you're not allowed, you wasn't allowed to express what you normally used to express in mail. Or when you sit down and have those contact visits with, you know, giving your loved one a hug or something, that, that stress relief that comes off by knowing that, that that is sacred, right? And when you take stuff like that away, you just, you're taking a piece of somebody's humanity. And that's what, you know, violating, you know, certain privacies, you know, does to especially people that's incarcerated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to kind of throw this in the mix as well, I think, um, you know, thinking about how all of these different tools for, um, you know, inhibiting the privacy of imprisoned people are also like very profitable for these companies, right? So it's like the more that they can constrict people's ability to have in-person visits or do physical mail, the more they can charge people, right? To do the video visits, to do the calls. So like also just thinking about it from like, you know, other people who should be caring about this, right? Like people who consider themselves like anti-capitalist or whatever it may be, right? It's like this, like it all, like everything, all of that work should be centered, right? Around kind of like what's going on with imprisoned people. Can I, can I just say one more thing on top yeah. of what you just said? You know, and the, and, the, and the most important thing to remember about that is, is that it's not really us that's incarcerated, that is paying. It's our loved ones that are taking food out of their kids' mouth to make sure that they communicate with us. It's our loved ones that really suffers the true financial burden that comes with all these big businesses wanting to put their, their product inside of prison. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um... Okay, I'm looking at time. I'm gonna to try to squeeze in one more question before we kind of do final closing thoughts. So one 
thing that you know Delaware DOC I know also Pennsylvania did this when they implemented the like the um, kind of digitization of, of mail they often kind of justify it or, or kind of claim right that the reason for doing this is um, contraband right the claim that contraband is is coming in through the physical mail and also through visitation so I wanted to post the panel like um, I think the answer is going to be yes but should we be skeptical of this claim and then also kind of how should we understand the rationale of this claim at a time right when more people are building connections with people inside and there's kind of perhaps more um, attention to or awareness of like the horrors that are inside um, our nation's prisons and jails so I'll pose that um, and anyone's welcome to kind of take it away yeah just to um to, to speak to um this point from um, a legal perspective right because now I'm not I'm not gonna say that okay there's not any contraband coming in through the mail. I don't know. But this is what I do know, legally speaking, right, is that the DOC, right, they do not need to make a concrete case, right, to uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, the federal courts, right, to get a ruling in their favor. So if they simply, like, theoretically say, okay, this could be a, a potential problem, contraband coming in through the mail, right? And they make that case theoretically. Right. That, that would be sufficient for the federal courts, the U.S. Supreme Court to rule in their favor. And I'm wondering whether whether or not this is really a theoretical case, whether this is a, a conniving effort on the DOC. Right. So, so, so again, strip away, uh, you know, people's privacy rights. Right. That, that they, they are, are otherwise entitled to, you know, if not for these exaggerated, you know, theoretical claims. So. This is this this is what I'm thinking. I, this is really like this is a, an exaggerated prison concern. It's a theoretical argument, but again, legally speaking, that would be sufficient for the federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court to make this the law of the land. And that's what that's what frightens me. Yeah, that's a terrifying prospect. Um, yeah, go for it, so, Sergio. Do you want to hop in? Um, yeah, like so. I know in in Pennsylvania, they actually put the numbers up. When, when they took away the mail and they locked the prison down for about a month because of a, of a, of a fake fentanyl scare, the, the guards were saying that they were getting sick and they took, they gave them urine tests and everything. And nothing came up dirty. So we know that that was a lie. Um, but when... When that happened, they locked the jail down and they put up a memo on, on, the, um, on the screen and they sent it out to the public, as a matter of fact. And it said in the last year, there were 2,700 uh, drug instances. That's what they called them. But of those, only 300 of them involved uh, prisoners and the, and, 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 uh, and the visiting room. Outside of that, everything else was stagged. And nobody, nobody made a big fuss about that. Nobody said, okay, these guards were lying. They, they weren't doing this. Or maybe they weren't lying. They experienced something that they, that they thought they were experiencing something. But they never, they never took anything back. They never said, all right, we were wrong. It was a mistake. They kept it like that. So they used stuff like that as an excuse to just take. Yes. Well, we... 
we deal we deal with that. Are you done? Yeah, right. yeah. Gotcha. Right. But we kind of deal with that. You think about the situation, right? Somebody goes home on parole. This this is an actual event. Somebody goes home on parole and they wind up murdering somebody, right? So that one one instant, now everybody in prison can be our possible murderers when they get out on parole, right? Or they're gonna do something that's gonna be wrong. So when we talk about the contraband, right? One person, a few people can ruin the whole idea for the rest, right? But isn't it, CEOs are, you know, Correctional officers are glorified babysitters in the, in the first place. They have to have a job to do. And it is to make sure that stuff like that doesn't happen. They get paid to do this stuff, right? And when you start, you know, one or two people having, having contra- maybe having contraband come in and it ruins it for everybody else. Now you want to take all the mail away because a few people you know, wasn't able to follow the rule. Y'all caught him, right? Or y'all didn't catch him. But y'all, you know what I mean? These things just happen. This is this is what you this is what is your job is to do these things so that you know we can still maintain some type of humanity and civil liberties while we're inside rehabilitating ourselves or you know, habilitating ourselves. Because we try not to use rehabilitation anymore. We use habilitation around where I'm at. So, you know. As far as the contraband is concerned, like, you know, like, ain't nothing perfect. No system is perfect. Period. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, just kind of to Sergio's point, it's like, we know that, like, meaning, you know, it's been shown, right, in places where they've implemented these policies that, like, you know, oftentimes the drug, like the contraband doesn't stop because it's guards who are like bringing it in or, or like whoever, you know, so it's like, I think, again, sort of thinking about like manufactured problems in order to write, like, you know, impose certain things that um, restrict and prison people's livelihoods further. Um, Monica, did you want to, did you want to hop in? Um, really, I'm just saying some stuff again. In my experience, in the time I was locked up, most of the contraband that I ever came across had its origin with a fucking CO, right? Not from a visit, not from the mail, right? It has come in for favors, um, this kind of shit. Again, prisons are places of horrible, ridiculous violences that just, violences and indignities that almost become mundane in the ways that we think about it. Like we have a whole PRIA, a whole Prison Rape Elimination Act. And when correctional officers are like hardly ever convicted of that shit, right? Hardly ever. And they're still like, they still argue consent in these cases. You know what I'm saying? Like it's the whole shit is ridiculous. And even though there's a whole thing called the Prison Rape Elimination Act that's federal, most state law where it is illegal for a correctional officer to have any kind of relationships with someone in their custody. It's usually called something along the lines of, in Illinois, it's called custodial sexual misconduct. They won't even call it fucking rape, right? Um, But this is, in my experience, most contraband comes in through fucking correctional staff. Um, There was a point, this happened when I was in Dwight way back in the day in Dwight, they shut the mail room down for 
maybe a little over a month because I don't know what did they say was they were sending in cyanide or whatever the fuck. What was it? Anthrax. They were like, we're gonna have anthrax, right? And we all knew that it was some bullshit because we heard COs talking about it. They just didn't want to work in the mailroom. They just didn't want to work in the mailroom. So they're like, there's anthrax. We're not going to work in the mailroom. We're just going to sit here on Hazard Drive. So Hazard Drive and Dwight back in the day was like the main road that we used to walk on to go to Chow or Rec or, or the Yard or whatever, right? And so they'd just be chilling on Hazard Drive, just deciding what they weren't going to do or what they were going to do to us. Um, the whole... Yeah, contraband starts with COs. Most nine times out of 10, it's starting with a CO. It might come through a visit maybe on occasionally, but most of the time, it's not. And if it does make it through a visit, so fucking what? It's fucking prison, right? The catch and come for the hand, whatever. Um, I'm, but seriously, like, what do you expect people to do, right? What do you expect people to do? You are People have been captured and ensnared into a system that people are just trying to survive in the best way that they can. So if we're going to like be, instead of worrying about like contraband in prisons, consider prisons the contraband, right? Prisons are contraband things. Oh, yeah. We need to be eliminating that contraband and get on with the shit, abolition. Um, again, and we got to get on our like stuff. We cannot continue to allow because if it's happening in one place and then it happens in another place and it happens in another place, that's the end of paper mail and everything else, right? It's just a domino. And it's already happening in a couple of places. Like, we have to stop it here. We have to stop it here. That's what I got. Absolutely. Um, Maya, did you want to hop in? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, sure. I I think what, what Monica just said was absolutely true. And I think that one of the things that we really have to bear in mind with this contraband question is the war on drugs more broadly? And why is it that you shut down one of the few vehicles for humanity based on the idea that a couple of people supposedly sent in fentanyl, even though it didn't even happen, but just thinking about like, why is that alarmism the thing that sets it all off? So then you think about, well, A, why why do people use drugs at all you know and what are the the issues behind that b why does it matter like why is that a thing that's illegal and c what is the broader strategy of the system in using that as a tool of repression and oppression and i think that a lot of places right now are seizing on fentanyl the same way, you know, there's there's always a particular drug that they're going to seize on, meth, crack, you know, looking historically. And right now it's fentanyl. And there are all these myths of like contact deaths from fentanyl. That's not a real thing it actually doesn't happen. Like no one who actually knows about it will tell you that that's a thing. But CEOs are saying this. And I think that people take them at their word or they even create these fictions as a justification apart from any story. 
because it's this thing that's in the air that's part of this larger drug war system. And it's just usable in that way. It's, it's a narrative that's usable and it's really terrifying. And I think we need to call that out wherever it happens, not because fentanyl doesn't have the potential to cause harm. I mean, my sister died of a, a fentanyl overdose, but I'm saying that this is, this is a thing that people are using to justify torture and we need to challenge that that disconnect and those lies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so looking at the time, I don't wanna hold folks over, it is getting late. Um, so I think what we'll do is we'll just have everyone go around if they'd like and just kind of share some final thoughts, final words, whatever is kind of like on your heart right now and, and kind of talking about these topics. But before we do that, I do just want to say to folks in the audience that like we are actively trying to fight this policy from being implemented, the policy to abolish physical mail um, in Delaware prisons um, right now. Um, and so please check out the Beyond Prisons website, which has a bunch of action items, you know, involving signing petitions, writing, um, various governors and, and other <laughs> politicians in Delaware. Um, so please um, go to go, we can drop maybe in the chat, the website, go there, take action. It's really urgent that we do everything we can to, to try to fight this terrible policy again, because as we talked about in this panel, it's like if they can do it in more prisons, right? It's gonna just like come to every prison, right? The more it's legitimized, the more um, we're in trouble. So anyway, just wanted to say that now, but um, yeah, if folks wanna just kind of give some closing thoughts or reflections, I'll just, get a little brief just because of, of time, but yeah, sorry, go for it, Lawrence, yeah. All right, I just wanna say that, you know, writing, you know, the act of physically writing is mental wellness. And and, and that's, that's, that's just the bottom line of, of it for me. You know, it's a peace of mind. It's a peace of mind for the person that's receiving and writing. Yes, you know, um, you know, speaking um spiritually, right? Um, I embrace my male, my my uh, my physical male, right, as sort of a uh, like a spiritual energy, sort of. You know, in other words. I understood when people sit down to, to write me that letter, right? They're busy, don't want to be writing. It's like a homework assignment for them, but they took that time, right? And they expressed themselves in that letter. They gave me a piece of themselves. So as, you know, as I accumulated my mail, went in prison, it was almost as if I was forming a community with my family members, my friends, you know? So when you take that away, from um, an incarcerated person, you take away a community in a sense, right? Which can be dangerous. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel, this, I feel the same way right there. I think that um, this, this issue right here is, 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 is deeper than just a physical issue. You know, it's, it's mental, it's spiritual. It's a, it's a connection with a, a loved one, with the community. And we are social beings. So, you know, that's what we, this is what we crave every day. And that's the one thing that prison takes away from us. And so the fight is, is, is even more important and harder. And you need all the help that you can get. And that's, that's the kind of help that you need right there. Yeah. 
And I just left, so I, I still – it's still on me a little bit. So I'm just out here trying to help any way I can. Amazing. Yeah, thank you. I just come out and say, all my homies hate prisons. <laughs> um, um, but I think, you know, uh, nobody – I guess the powers that be really understand the what the community that's on the up, on the inside what they're really up against, right? And the impact that that like prison itself is an isolating experience. Then if you you know digitize mail, you kind of you know replicate that isolation, but you know in an interior way. So it's like isolation built on isolation, built on isolation. And it's just like a long-term, I mean, hey, I've been home for two years and I feel like I'm still recovering from, you know, the years of isolation. You know, I'm still, I haven't even hit the, the surface of just, un, just like put, peeling back layers and layers of like, and so if you do things like this, you know, it just, you know, adds another layer to what we have to kind of unlearn or un, undo once we get out. You know, and it's important to kind of, you know, build bridges, you know, build those bridges, you know, and make those connections on the outside because like they, they want to isolate us, you know, and separate us and, you know, divide and conquer, right? Um, and, and work like this is important because we have to, you know, despite everything, we have to build those bridges and preserve those connections. So I want to salute everybody for, you know, being a part of this conversation. Everybody is like amazing human beings, you know, so I celebrate y'all, so. Thank you for those who organized this. Amazing, thank you, Michael. Yeah, I'll just say real quick, I think there's a reason why so many abolitionist organizers and organi organizations, groups, are built around letter writing. So black and pink, the core, is letter writing, started as letter writing. Love and Protect, the collective I'm part of, a core activity is letter writing and supporting individuals through that practice. And thinking about the ways that building bonds, building relationships with people can be an abolitionist practice in itself. And as everyone's been saying here, that connection is so much deeper with the physical mail and less surveilled. And so I just want to put that out there that this is also a barrier to organizing. And when we look at this policy, it's that form of political repression as well. And that is something that on top of every other thing that it means, I think it should terrify us and spur us to act against this policy as well. You know, if we see this as a vehicle for organizing, which so many groups do, then they should be specifically acting to address this policy and to confront this policy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, Maya. Um, thank you for 
raising that. Um, yeah, Ellis or Monica, do you want to share final thoughts? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah, I can come in and just say there's so many reasons why um, physical mail is important, as has been raised here um, by everybody, and I appreciate hearing from everyone and being a part of this, um, but also that prisons function as a as a way to to like reinforce this condition of separation as as if you know we as individual humans are separate from one another but also separate from life around us in other forms separate from nature all these things um and like something like physical mail is just a way to like intervene in that in that lie of separation and really like bring humanity and connection interconnectedness into a to a situation that's really like trying to deny it um so i think that anybody who's not who's thinking well why what does this matter it's just male it's just one form of male rather than another but it's like bringing so much love and light into um into a situation where it's really trying to be stamped out. So I think this is just one part of a struggle to um, a larger struggle to fight that idea of separation in all its forms, whether we're talking about capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, um, all of the ways that that separation is like conditioned in our society. Amazing, yeah. Monica, you wanna take us home? Oh wait, I think you're on mute. There we go. Everything everyone has said, um, I'm about quotes. I had come across this Aaron Hattie Roy quote that someone had sent me and then I saw it again in a magazine and I only had this one theme. And what it was, was another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. And I built this whole entire world around that because having been in some difficult spaces in my life, wishing for a new world, all up in the prison, just with everything that'd be going on. And so years pass and I get out of prison and I come across this whole man, is Aaron Hadi Roy. And so at the time that I found the first part of this quote, I had no context to go off of. All I had was that one quote and an image of earth as seen from space. And I built a whole world around that, that gave me a kind of faith, right? It bolstered me in a kind of way. And so here's that whole quote in its entirety. And so when I got out and I came across it, I was like, yes, now I know why I love it. And I think it speaks to all of what we're talking about. I hope it does anyway. And it's just like, I broke a name. The system will collapse if we refuse to buy what they are selling their ideas, their version of history, their wars, their weapons, their notions of inevitability. Remember this, we be many and they be few. They need us more than we need them. Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. Aaron Hadi Roy. And this, this is where we hold the line, right? We don't let this happen in Delaware. We don't, we don't let it happen here and we don't let it happen anywhere else because what comes after and the world is coming and that's what I got and thank you so much for having me Kim I love you y'all brothers welcome home thank you thank all you. So Atlas could hang yeah. for just five minutes after we disconnect I'm gonna
say uh, if you thank you everyone who joined us this evening. This conversation is recorded, uh, so you it will have a life of its own uh, on the Beyond Prisons website, and anyone else that wants to also host <laughs> the um, the recording on on their website. Thank you, um, thank you everyone. Thank you for the opportunity.